0: How's everybody doing this afternoon and this morning? Good? Okay. All right. Uh, I'm going to pray real quick and ask God to help um, as we open the Word. Father God, you are so gracious and merciful. I like that last song said, You are Lord of all. You're Lord of broken guitar strings. You're Lord of our broken hearts. You're Lord of our need in this hour, uh, wherever we are, Father God, you can see into our lives and you can meet us there. And as we turn our hearts in this Advent season to Christmas and to the reality of the incarnation and Jesus coming into this world, I pray that you would grant us eyes to see your beauty, your worth, your glory, that we would treasure you above everything else in this world. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, As they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor have been broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So that's Isaiah 9 verses 2 through 7. And most of us probably recognize this as a Christmas passage in the scriptures. But the reason we recognize it as a Christmas passage isn't because it is explicitly connected to Christmas in the New Testament. The reason we see it as a Christmas passage uh, isn't because necessarily its main focus is the birth of Jesus. We see it as a Christmas passage because it's connected to a, a verse earlier in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah seven fourteen, And that verse is quoted in Matthew 1 when the angel says to Joseph, Joseph, she, that is Mary, who he was engaged to, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then the inspired author, Matthew, says this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's Isaiah 7, verse 14. This son in Matthew 1, and the son in Isaiah 9, 6 are the same person. When Isaiah says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about that child who was born to Mary and Joseph And so this text is about Christmas. But what's amazing about this passage in Isaiah 9 is that it was written not primarily to celebrate the holiday of Christmas. It was written primarily to speak hope into darkness. It was written during a time when the people of Israel were faced with exile, their sin and their rebellion against God, their dishonoring of his glory had forced them into the hands of their enemies. And so this prophecy, which came up into that season, looks into the face of profound darkness and futility and speaks hope into it. This prophecy told the people of Israel, your current circumstance is not the end. It's not the end of your story. This is not how you're going to be defined. The darkness of exile will not always be. There is a king who is coming. There's a child who will be born, a son to be given. And when he comes, Isaiah says, all things will be set to right. All things will be fixed. And so Isaiah 9 isn't just for Christmas. Isaiah 9 verses two through seven, is for years like 2020. It's for difficult years like 2020, which this year for most of us, for many of us, has no doubt been a, a season of profound change and difficulty and trial and darkness. And this season is why we have a text like this in the Bible. And so for the month of December, as we go into the Advent season, um, if, as the Lord wills, my desire has been to close this year out in this text and ask, what does this passage tell us, people who live in 2020, about the Son who was given? What does it tell us about the kind of kingdom that He is bringing into this world? And what should our hearts in this season, at the end of 2020, be fixated on as we come to the end of this year? Those are the questions we're going to be asking. <clears throat> and today What I wanna do is two things really today. The first is this, I I wanna get a high level view of this prophecy, like the the, the verses that we've looked at here, just capture its essence and get an understanding for the the basic idea that Isaiah is presenting here. And then what I wanna do is I wanna zero in very closely at the foundation of this passage. What's at the bottom of it? What is the basis? What is the, the driving force in this promise from God underneath the text that we can put our confidence in. And so let's start with the first thing. Let's look at a summary of the passage. We'll just run through the verses real quick. Isaiah (laughs) begins in verse two saying, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, light has shone." So for the people of Israel, when they heard this, this was a big deal. This was huge. The darkness of exile in the country of Assyria would not be permanent for them. One day, Isaiah says, a great light is going to shine. And the effect of that light shining into the darkness of exile, being displaced from your own country, brought to a land you did not know to live the rest of your life, the darkness of that exile, when it encounters this light, the reality that happens is vividly outlined in the next few verses. So verse three says, you, so Isaiah is turning his attention to God, looking at God and saying, you have multiplied the nation as this light is shining. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So, so the nature of this shining light in verse two is that through it, God is multiplying his people. He's multiplying his nation. He's increasing their joy as, as though they had joy at harvest when all of their, their, the fruits of their labor came in or at the dividing of spoil, which is this idea of, of it's, a, it's a military victory language And that military reality is is continued in verse four when he says, for the yoke of his burden, the burden of the people of Israel and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. So the oppressor of God's people, you God have broken as on the day of Midian for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel For the fire. So again, this prophecy is an amazing passage of hope. Light is shining in verse 2, and the effects of that light shining are all of these glorious things the increasing of the nation, the dividing of spoil. When God comes and He breaks the yoke of their oppressor, He breaks the rod, the staff that is keeping them oppressed, just like He did on the day of Midian. You know the story of Gideon. Gideon had a small, weak army. He was a small, weak man. And he displays God's amazing power by decimating the army of Midian. And what Isaiah is saying is, that's how this is gonna happen. And when it happens, every warrior's boot and every bloodied military uniform will be in that day burned as fuel for fire. In other words, think about this. We won't need those things anymore. There won't be any more war. There won't be any more conflict. There won't be any more strife. They won't even just cease to exist. They have completely been changed from instruments of destruction to instruments of blessing. They now benefit God's people by providing them heat and fire. Um, So this light will take away evil and destructive instruments and bend them into a blessing for God's people. That's what this means. And all of this happens because this light is shining into the darkness of exile. And then in verse six, finally, he begins to explain what this light is or really who this light is. He says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. In other words, all that came before this comes from this child. All of the good that I just described in the first few verses of this prophecy comes from this son who is given. He's the light. He's the light that is shining into the darkness. And verse six tells us why all of those benefits come about as he enters into the world. Isaiah says in verse six, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And this child's name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of this child, this son's government, and of peace, there will be, Isaiah says, no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So the reason that oppression is brought to an end, the reason that there is no more war, the reason that there is joy as at the harvest and that there's the dividing of spoil and the multiplication of the nation, all of those glorious benefits in the middle of the darkness of exile is because of this son who is born. Verse six, he's going to bear all of the government on his shoulder. He's gonna be king of everything. He's the one who, who we will call wonderful counselor. We will look at him and we will call him mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. That's who this child is. He is the light that shines into the hopelessness of our world. And although this passage that I just read certainly was intended to encourage the people of Israel, certainly was intended to to show them that their time in exile would have an expiration date, that God would not forget them, that he would bring them back home. (coughs) The greater meaning of this passage isn't that. The greater meaning isn't directed at the physical exile In Assyria, the greater meaning of this passage looks at the ultimate exile that we experience through sin and death. That's what Isaiah is addressing here ultimately. That's the darkness that is most profound in his prophecy. Someone needed to come, like Matthew 1 tells us or told us at the beginning, to save his people from their sins. And that someone is Jesus Christ. He is the light that is shining in verse two, he is the son that is given in verse six. And Matthew one marks the birth of that son into the world and the beginning of his mission to save his people from their sins and to powerfully usher in this kingdom that Isaiah nine verses two through seven is talking about. And now you and I are on the other side of that son's birth and the other side of that son's work on the cross to save people from <coughs> their sins. And we recognize, looking at that prophecy in Isaiah 9, as we celebrate Christmas, as we, as we worship during this Advent season, we recognize that this prophecy was true. 700 years before Jesus came, Isaiah proclaimed this message. He came, and now we know that one day he's going to return, and he's going to come back, and he's gonna break the oppressor's rod for us. And he's gonna be the one who will gather up all of the boots and the garments that are soaked in blood in this world, everything that has been used to destroy other people. He's gonna gather them up and he's going to use them for the purpose of his people's comfort and joy. So that was, um, and apologies if it came by fast, I just need to get to the heart of the text. That was basically this prophecy, this eternal kingdom of peace that God is bringing into this world through Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the son who was given. That's the purpose of the child who was born. But w- what I feel constrained to focus on today, what I feel like we need to zero in on today is the reason all of that happens. Like what, what, is, what is the driving force behind this prophecy, this promise. We know that there's a reason because Isaiah Isaiah lists a reason. He wants us to see the reason. He wants us to know what causes, what's going to cause all of this. What has caused Jesus to come into the world and what's going to drive him to come at the end of the age. Everything we read in this passage hangs on this one reality, and so here's the, here's the question for today and the, the foundation really for this entire series throughout de- December. What is the main driving force behind the birth of this child? The giving of this son and everything glorious that flows from this event, this kingdom of eternal peace, righteousness and justice. What is the main reality underneath all of that? And we see that at the end of verse 7. Look with me at it. The last thing that Isaiah says in this prophecy. Isaiah 9, 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's the source. This word zeal. Simple word. Z-E-A-L. But underneath that, is where all our hope comes from. Now, what does Isaiah mean by that? Why put that here? Why undergird this promise in this text with a statement about the zeal of the Lord of hosts? Why draw our attention to this? And the reason is this, it's very simple. God wants us to know why this is gonna happen. God wants us to know why this promise is going to become a reality. Why this light entered into the world 2000 years ago And why he's going to come again one day to permanently install his kingdom. And the reason why is very simple. Zeal. That is the reason why. This passion, this purpose, this driving force in the heart of the Lord of hosts. the zeal is the reason why he's going to accomplish everything. Everything in this text hangs on that word. It is accomplished through that word. So what is it? What is God zealous about? Well, the first thing we need to do is ask the question, who is the Lord in this text? What does he mean by Lord? Obviously that is God, but the Lord, when it's all caps here, we know this because we've talked about this before. In Hebrew, that word is the personal name of God. When Lord or God is in all caps, it is Yahweh. That's the word in Hebrew that this is referring to. And Yahweh is the name that God gave himself back in Exodus three fourteen, when God reveals his personal name to Moses who authored the first five books of the Bible. He says, you wanna know who I am? I am who I am. That's who I am. That's my reality. That's who I am. The Hebrew verb, uh, hayah, which means to be, is where we get Yahweh. It's where we got his name which means simply think about this, I am, I am, (laughs) which means that God is absolute self existing reality. Try to wrap your minds around this. He never had a beginning, never. And he will, never, ever end. He is uncreated, eternal reality. He relies on nothing to exist. He depends on nothing to exist. He simply is. And yet all of us, this entire world, the entire cosmos depend on him for our existence every millisecond that we are around. That's what Yahweh means. Yahweh does not depend on anything. Everything depends on him. But he's not just called Yahweh here. Isaiah calls him Yahweh of hosts. There's this descriptor, hosts, in this passage, (coughs) which refers to the armies of heaven. It's this supernatural realm of beings that the Bible oftentimes compares with the stars in the sky, this endless parade that we see of the cosmos stretching out into seemingly immeasurable depths. This is the closest physical, visible reality we have in our world to depict what Isaiah means when he uses the word host. These supernatural beings that if we could visualize them are like countless stars in heaven, Yahweh is Lord of every single one of them. He made them all, they belong to him and they are visible evidence of this fact that whoever Yahweh is, there is nothing too difficult or too hard for him. If he made that, nothing is beyond his ability. So this zeal that Yahweh of hosts has isn't like the zeal you and I have. It's not like the passion or the, the, the desires that we have, which are creaturely by comparison. Yahweh is not a creature. He is an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent creator, and he lacks absolutely nothing. And so what in the world could he be zealous for? What in the world could he desire? Well, fortunately we don't have to look far beyond our text in Isaiah to see what this is. Although the zeal of the Lord of Hosts is revealed throughout the entire corpus of scripture, you can see it in every single book, in every single theme in the Bible. Isaiah himself does not leave us wondering what This zeal is, he surfaces it repeatedly throughout his book. For example, Isaiah 43, six through seven, where God says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Why did God create sons and daughters? For his glory. His motivation, his pursuit, his ultimate goal in creating children from among humanity and really in in creating all of humankind is his glory. That's his motivation. That's his driving pursuit. That is his zeal. And we know this because in Isaiah 49.3, God looks specifically at the people of Israel and tells them why they exist. He says, you are my servant, Israel. Israel in whom I will be glorified. In other words, this is going to happen. <laughs> no matter what, this is going to happen. I will be exalted, God is saying. I will be magnified. I will be glorified. This is why Israel existed. And this is why all of God's people have existed throughout the running ages. Unless we get hung up on this and think, well, maybe this is just a a secondary pursuit of God, maybe a secondary reason for his purposes in in this world. Listen to why God forgives and pardons human beings in order for them to be his sons and daughters, in order for them to be welcomed into his family. God says it in Isaiah 43, 25. He says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. God blots out transgressions for his own sake, for his own name, for his own glory. And if we were to look long enough throughout the scriptures, we would see this over and over and over and over. In fact, we would come to the conclusion that this is true about everything that God has ever done ultimately underneath everything that God has ever done has been a pursuit for his glory. This isn't an exception to the rule. Underneath all of his actions, all of his decisions, all of his determinations is this same zeal. God is pursuing his glory, whether in justice or judgment that is righteous and holy, or whether in mercy or grace all of it is a pursuit of his own glory to be, to be seen by us, to be known, to be treasured in this world. And the clearest text probably in the Bible to show us this is, is interestingly enough in Isaiah uh, as well. Isaiah 48, 8 through 11. And I want you to see this passage because this honestly, I feel is the most compelling evidence in the scriptures to show us God's ultimate allegiance to pursuing the glory of his own name. Isaiah 48 verses 8 through 11. So Israel, remember, has defied God. They have repeatedly sinned against him. They are on the verge of being completely wiped off the face of the planet. And God tells them why it is they will not get erased from this world. He says to them, I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth, you Israel were called a rebel for my name's sake. I defer my anger for the sake of my praise. I I restrain it. My anger for you that I may not cut you off. "'Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. "'I have tried you in the furnace of affliction.'" Now, why did you do that, God? Why did you do that to the people of Israel? "'For my own sake. "'For my own sake I do it. "'For how should my name be profaned? "'My glory I will not give to another.'" That's the zeal of Yahweh. That's the zeal of Yahweh of hosts. The reason God defers his anger here is for his own sake. Ultimately, it's for the sake of his name, for his own glory. This is why he doesn't cut them off. This is why he refuses uh, for them to be removed from the planet. He doesn't want his name to be profaned. So underneath every action, even these actions where he's preserving his own people, underneath every action God has ever done and ever will do is the zeal For his worth, his beauty, his majesty, his glory to be displayed and to be known for what it truly is. This is the heart of God. Now, no doubt, and I just need to be clear here, there are myriad reasons and motivations that flow from the heart of God. We're going to look at one later in just a minute. There are many different impulses he has and and reasons he does what he does in the world, he says them in his word. But this right here, the zeal for his own glory, for his own worth is the center and the source of every single thing he does. It is the ultimate reason for all things, the glory of God. And this reality, God's zeal for his own glory is what holds up Isaiah nine. And the promise of this son to be born, this kingdom of peace, that's gonna be ushered into the world. It is rooted in God's zeal for his glory to be known. So the question we really have to ask here is when we see a text like this, that's very clearly showing that God is doing this for the purpose of showing his glory, we need to ask why? Why, do you, why are you showing us this zeal? Like, why do, you, why do we need to see this? It's all over the scriptures. I mean, even the, think about this. The, the scriptures themselves written by God, tell us to praise him, tell us to worship him, tell us to glorify him. It's all over the Bible. Well, the, We have the Bible specifically so that we would glorify God. So why does he want us to see this? Well, to answer that question, what I wanna do is I wanna engage an objection. I wanna engage the objection that I had when I saw this in the scriptures. And I want you to join me in engaging this objection. Maybe, maybe you feel some of this, what I'm about to say, that, that you feel kind of a revulsion or difficulty understanding that God's main and ultimate pursuit in everything he does is his own glory. Some would hear that, I did, and say in response, that's conceited. That sounds arrogant and proud. Isn't it like... Arrogant for God to pursue his own glory above all other things. That doesn't sound humble. Doesn't sound meek. It sounds proud and selfish and unloving. And as an unbeliever, I looked at texts in the Bible and that was my response. He wants me to worship him. And to be sure, we need to know that for us to act and live like this, for us to pursue our glory at the exclusion of everything else, would be all those things. We would be proud, we would be selfish, we would be unloving. In fact, the Bible tells us explicitly that. So why is it that God wants us to see him pursuing his glory above all other things? (laughs) What is he after here? Well, we're gonna engage this three different ways and this should help us understand why Isaiah nine is so precious. Number one, one reason that God is zealous for his own glory to be seen and enjoyed, that he is pursuing it in all things, is this God is zealous for his own glory because he actually is this glorious. It is an objective fact. He is merely judging himself rightly, he is showing who he is truly to the world. It would be a sin for God to regard his worth as anything less than he does. In fact, you wanna look at the definition, the essence of sin is that, it's exchanging his glory for the lie. It would be a sin and a lie for God to pursue anything with greater passion, greater zeal, greater desire than his own glory. You and I don't deserve (laughs) this glory because everything we have was given to us by God. We have nothing in and of ourselves. Everything belongs to him, everything is for him. So God in pursuit of his own glory isn't arrogant. He's simply measuring himself right, correctly. He's assessing who he is and he's saying, that's who I am. God must be zealous for his glory. Otherwise he would be a sinner like us and he's not. Number two. Anything we consider in this world, like anything you love and treasure in this world and you consider worthy of glory and honor is only worthy of glory and honor because they are derivatives of his glory. They are derivatives of his worth. They don't exist on their own. So let's think about this. Whether we're talking about family, whether we're talking about Uh, food, whether we're talking about vacations or sunsets, sunrises, beautiful days in the park, whatever you can conceive of that you enjoy in this world, anything that you cherish in this world, all of that gets its loveliness from God. Its value isn't original. It is derivative. So think about this. Everything in this world is contingent on the glory of God on his worth, on his beauty. Everything hangs on his glory. If God did not pursue his glory ultimately, then all that you love in this world, all that I love in this world that we enjoy would be reduced to nothing. His glory is what gives glory to all things. Imagine it being something like a nail that's driven into a wall so that you can hang a picture. Well, the picture is reality but the nail is God's pursuit of his own glory. If you were to sever that nail or say that that nail shouldn't be there, everything else comes crashing to the ground. You are literally severing the root of all value in the universe. So those are the first two reasons that God in pursuing his own glory, that this being the zeal of Yahweh isn't wrong, but is right. But the third reason I want you to really listen closely to, because this is the most precious to me personally, and it will be the most precious to you. The most glorious reason that God pursues his glory above all things is actually the answer to why God wants us to see his zeal in Isaiah nine. God created us, created me, he created you to know his glory. That's why you and I exist in this world. And if he is as glorious as his unwavering zeal in Isaiah 9 says that he is, then his pursuit of glory is actually, listen to this, an act of love. It's an act of love. In fact, it is the greatest act of love God could ever commit himself to. Because in his zeal for his own glory, he is displaying, he is preserving, he is fighting for the only thing that could ever satisfy our souls. The highest, and I need you to listen to me on this because this is so easy for us just to listen to and not actually take in. The highest joy in all reality is not your family. It's not your spouse. It's not your children. It's not your house, it's not your job, and and some of us need to hear this this season, it's not your health. The highest joy in all reality is not anything that this world can give us. It's Him. It is Him. It's His glory. Your greatest possible happiness and gladness and contentment and pleasure will listen to me, be be never found in created reality. We need to give up looking in created reality for our highest treasure. It is only found in the creator of reality. And what this means is that God has, this is amazing, he is so tied together his zeal and passion for his glory with our good, And our eternal joy that for those who belong to him, his zeal for his glory is a divine act of love. It is the deepest possible love that you could ever conceive of because it is anchored to the greatest reality in all existence. This is the very reason that God wants us to see his zeal for his glory. He wants us to know that Isaiah 9 All of that Christmas text is undergirded and held up by God's single greatest allegiance, his eternal commitment to display his great name. He will not be wavering from that. He will continue and see it all the way through, which means, my friends, that what we look at over the next coming weeks in Isaiah 9 is guaranteed for us. It is guaranteed, it is certain, God has seen to it that this promise will not fail. He has tied our blessing eternally to his pursuit of his own glory. And from that zeal, he will never waver. Not once. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this as Isaiah says. But here's the thing, in order to join our eternal blessing to his own zeal for his glory, a son needed to be given. The son of Isaiah 9 needed to be born into this world. Like Matthew 1 told us at the beginning, a son needed to be born to save his people from their sins. None of Isaiah 9 is ours if that doesn't happen. It's not. We have no part in the kingdom of Isaiah nine if this son isn't born. And the reason that you and I don't have a part in that kingdom unless this son is born is because we've all spent as humans, as fallen humans, countless days dishonoring God by doing precisely what he refuses to do. That is pursuing lesser glories instead of his glory. That's what sin fundamentally is. It is the pursuit of lesser glories over him. And in order to fix that, in order to repair it, in order to to bring life into that, God had to give his son. And that son had to die on a cross so that his pursuit of glory and our eternal blessing, our eternal joy in that kingdom of peace could be one pursuit for him and for us. The cross of Christ is how you and I are grafted into, woven into God's pursuit of his own glory. We have been anchored into his zeal. And it's only in the cross that you you and I can join God in his pursuit. And so as we begin this series over this next month in Isaiah nine, I want us to see with the eyes of our hearts the zeal of Yahweh of hosts. To feel a surety, certainty, confidence that this is going to happen because the cross happened. He's paid for this. It's going to happen. This is why the son was given. For those who have trusted and received this son, Christ Jesus, as we partake in the elements of communion in in the next few moments during this next song, please do this with me. Reflect with me the stunning reality that for those of us who have faith in Christ Jesus, the unblushing promises of Isaiah 9 are not only the reason for Christmas, they are the reason for every day of our lives. Especially this year. Especially in a year where we've lost so much. God has knit our eternal joy to his glory. They are now inseparable. So his pursuit of our glory is his pursuit of our joy and gladness, not in the things of this world, but in him. This is why you exist. This is why I exist. This is why we were redeemed on the cross. You and I were made to know this glory and for it to be our ultimate treasure. So plead with God during communion and during the next song and during this week that that he would open our eyes to see the zeal of the Lord of hosts, and that we would join God in that pursuit for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the the reality of, of of Isaiah 9 is too great for us to even comprehend. That there would be a light that would shine. So bright that all war would end, that oppression would cease, and that your son on whose shoulders rest, all of the government would come into this world and bring about a kingdom that will have no end of peace, of righteousness, of justice, Father God, It is too great for us to even conceive of in our weak, broken state. Help us have eyes to see that glory. But Father, right at the beginning of this series, may it be your will to open the eyes of our hearts to see underneath the kingdom to come, underneath the birth of a son, and all the benefits that that brings is the zeal of Yahweh of hosts, from which he will never, ever, ever waver. He will never be deterred. He will see through to the end that his glory reigns. Help us to feel that. Help us to feel something of that in this season when so much of our lives is not normal. I plead with you, Father, in the name of Jesus, amen.